question, have you ever misinterpreted something? Ever misinterpreted something? I saw a story about a mom who was with her little toddler girl, and they were playing at a playground. She was watching her play, and at one point she stopped and she looked, and she realized her little girl was not paying attention to what she was doing, and she was getting ready to bump her head on that playground equipment. So the mom said, duck! And the little girl very quickly and loudly quacked and bumped her head. Totally missed what was going on, completely misinterpreted what her mom was trying to get her to do. Now, here's the question. Why is it that all of us sometimes quack instead of duck? Why is it that that we misinterpret things? Why do we miss what's going on? Well, there's a lot of reasons out there, some analytical theories like the uh, attribution bias, Simpson's paradox. Uh, there's the correlation causation fallacy. There's the Nigo Montoya principle. There's something called the woozel effect. Now, I'm not going to go into any of those because I have no idea what any of them mean, and I can't even spell some of them. But let's just keep it super, super simple. Why is it that there are times when we struggle to interpret things correctly? Why do we misinterpret things? Well, generally, it falls into one of three, maybe one or more of three categories. And the first is this. We aren't really paying attention to what's being communicated. We're we're just not really paying attention to what's going on. Or we don't really understand what's being communicated. We, We actually just really don't understand the information or we don't care to understand what's being communicated. We we are unconcerned. We could care less about what's being communicated. And misinterpreting things can sometimes lead to something much worse than just a, a bump on the head from some playground equipment. To misinterpret one thing in particular can create a, a level of spiritual and emotional and, and mental and marital and, and medical and, and political and, and practical and even physical confusion and damage that none of us want to be a part of. So what is that one thing that we don't want to misinterpret? Well, we continue our series higher this morning where we're looking very specifically at the teaching of Jesus, looking at a teaching of Jesus that, one, can change our lives, but also can change the lives of the people around us. And our message today is higher choosing. And we're going to be looking at the last part of Matthew chapter 5. And what we find in the last part of Matthew 5 is we find Jesus talking to his disciples, talking to his closest friends. And in talking to his closest friends, what we will see today is Jesus teaching them about this one thing that we really do not want to misinterpret. So what is that thing? Well, let's find out. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the first part of that is super correct. About 1,475 years before Jesus was up on this mountain teaching that day to his disciples, God gave his laws for life to the Hebrew people. And this is what Moses wrote down from God in Leviticus. Leviticus 19, verse 18. 
You shall not take vengeance nor hold any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the Hebrew word for neighbor here would mean a fellow Hebrew. In other words, the command is love your people because if you don't love your people, you won't have any people. You're, you're going to destroy your people if you don't love your people. So that's a pretty clear command from God, and it, and it makes sense in the math of life, right? Love one another so that your people do not disappear. However, there came some time when the Hebrew leaders, they decided to quack instead of duck. They completely misinterpreted the command from God because what they did was use some super fuzzy math, and they began to say, oh, well, what God meant was love your people and hate anybody that's not your people that's the moment that they needed the prophet Inigo Montoya to say I do not think it means what you think it means you guys are off you're missing it because God did not say hate the people that are not like you but that's what started getting spread around and it had been going around so long that now Jesus is addressing it but Jesus in a bit of a different way doesn't use the Hebrew word the Greek word here for neighbor means one who is nigh, a neighbor, one who is near. So who's near? Well, anybody can be near, right? I mean, anyone can be someone near. It doesn't have to be someone that's in your people group. It doesn't have to be your next door neighbor. Someone who's near could be anyone who is near to you. Months later, maybe even a year or so later, Jesus emphasized his teaching that day by, by sharing the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what happened was there was this man that came up to Jesus, and he came up and he said, hey, who do I have to love? Who is it that I have to love? Who, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to show mercy to? What do they look like? Who, who do they vote for? What kind of car do they drive? What neighborhood do they live in? Where do their kids go to school? What team do they cheer for? What, what kind of person is this that I'm going to have to love? And how did Jesus respond to his question? Well, for many people, this is a familiar story, but it's always good for us to hear again. So I'm going to just read Jesus' response. I'm going to read it from the, the paraphrase known as the message. This is what Jesus responded. There once was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes beat him up, and went off leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him, and when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. And Jesus turned to the man and said, what do you think? 
Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? And the man turned to Jesus and said, the one who treated him kindly. And so Jesus said, go and do the same. So the man came and said, hey, who do I have to love? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, if you want the answer to that question, you need to answer this question. Who are you? What kind of person are you? Because if you find the answer to the question, who are you, you'll find the answer to how you're supposed to love and who you're supposed to love. The church people, they needed to love their own people. Jesus wasn't getting rid of the law. But they didn't need to love only their people. And, and with his very choice of words, Jesus is trying to get his disciples to think higher. He's trying to get them to think more like God and less like man. Now, why did the priest and the, the Levite, why did they pass by on the other side? Why didn't they stop to help the man? Here's why. There wasn't a law telling them they had to. Does that ever sound like us? Well, I mean, I ain't got to do it. So I ain't going to do it. No, nobody told me I had to do it. It ain't in my job description. There ain't no law that says I have to do it, so, so I'm not going to do it. There was no law, and the only law they had in their mind was, hey, look out for your own. That's, that's what you do. You look out for your own. Here's the problem, though. That was a misinterpretation of the law. They added their own assumption to the law, so they actually were doing the wrong thing let's think about that in, in maybe a modern way I was watching an interview with a retired pastor from a couple of years ago and one of the questions he was asked in this interview was he said they, the question was so what do you think are some challenges that's ahead for the church in the future and the way he responded was very interesting his answer centered around the influence that the political and social culture is having on the church right now. And this is kind of how he explained it. He said, if we were to look for some basic God-ordained biblical principles of Christianity, just the, the kind of basic things that, that we saw in the first church that they were engaged with and things that a gospel-centered church should, should still be engaged with, he said, at the very least, we could come up with the following four things. We could come up with a concern for racial justice. We could come up with a concern for the poor and the marginalized. We could come up with a commitment to the sanctity of life and a commitment to the sanctity of marriage. Now, now granted, all of those things are, are hotly debated and, and argued in the world today, but at the very least, for whatever the Bible doesn't say about those issues, it does say enough about those issues to give those four biblically scripture-fueled principles. And so the picture of those four things really matters when you talk about the church today. A concern for racial justice, a concern for the poor and marginalized, a commitment to the sanctity of human life, a commitment to the sanctity of marriage. So let's take those and and apply it to a real life situation. Imagine I'm teaching at the church and I'm teaching on the sanctity of life. I'm teaching on the value of an unborn child or, or maybe I'm teaching on the sanctity of marriage. 
I'm teaching on, on God's design that, that physical intimacy happened within the, the a marriage of, of a man and a woman. And I, I'm teaching on those things. What are people, based on our current political and social culture, what are people probably going to say, both inside the church and outside the church, about me? Well, they're going to say, oh, he's a conservative preacher at a conservative church. He's preaching about the sanctity of life. He's preaching about the sanctity of marriage. He's a conservative preacher at a conservative church. Now, let's go another angle. Let's say that I'm teaching at the church and I'm teaching on racial justice. I'm teaching on the, the biblical reality that any person of any race and any gender, any nationality, any socioeconomic background has beautiful and inherent value and should be honored because they've been made in the image of God. Or imagine that I'm teaching on how the Bible says that if you look down upon the poor and the marginalized, you insult God. And Jesus even said, hey, sell your possessions and give to those in need. Based on our social and political culture, what do you think people would say? Oh, liberal preacher at a liberal church. He's preaching on racial justice and, and helping the poor and marginalized. He's, he's a liberal. And that, the retired pastor said, is where the church is today. And what every church seems to be doing is, well, we're going to pick two. We're just going to pick a couple. Because if we pick all four, mm, it gets messy. Our church members might get upset or people in the community might get upset. So, so we're just going to pick two and be safe. We're going to be conservative or we're going to be liberal. We're, we're, we're not going to be the church. We're not going to preach the gospel. We're just going to pick a couple because it makes everything easier and we feel better about it. And he's not far off. The problem is both of those interpretations are wrong, right? The conservative interpretation it's wrong. The liberal interpretation, it's wrong because all four are biblical. All four are connected to the gospel. And so we find ourselves in a, in a similar time trying to, to keep up with the pressures of society while saying that we're not keeping up with the pressures of society. Trying to keep on the plus side of whatever political or social group we most find a connection with. And the church is doing that as well. And what we're doing is misinterpreting the call of the church. So for the good of the church, for the good of this community, for the good of the country, for the good of your own personal life, what is it that is most desperately needed from Christians today? Well, it's the same thing that's always been needed most desperately from Christians. And we find it all the way back in Proverbs chapter three. What we need to do more than anything else is trust the Lord with all of our heart, our whole heart. And we need to lean on his whole truth as our source for wisdom and understanding for today and for the days ahead. But listen, that's something we have to choose. It's a higher choosing. See, we can, we can choose to pick two and do the wrong thing. But Jesus is calling us to a, a higher choosing. 
Look, it's not wrong to listen to political or social commentators or, or pundits or prognosticators or, or podcasters or bloggers or philosophers or historians or, or any of that. It's not wrong to listen to any of that. In fact, we need to listen to some of it. However, it is wrong, and I would dare say evil, for us to listen to those people over and above and beyond and more than the one that still says, I am the Lord. Nothing's changed. He is still the God of the universe, and he still says, you listen to me first and most. How many hours do we spend with God? And how many hours do we spend with the news? Where is our, our time frame? What are we downloading the most? Who do we listen to the most? When we're in the breakfast joint and everybody's whining and complaining about how our country's going to hell, do we ever speak up for the God who still says, I am the Lord? Or do we just go along with the conversation? When we're standing in, in the hospital or when we're standing at school or, or when we're homesick even and, and things are falling apart, where is our heart and mind with the God that still says, I am the Lord? He's still our God. He's never changed. You see, some things can become idols. Really good things can become idols. Political issues can become idols. Social issues can become idols. Religious issues can become idols. And that same God was very clear. He said, you shall make no idol for yourself. Yes, we need to engage with everything that's happening in the world. We're alive now. We have to engage with, with society and with politics and with medicine and science and, and religion and sports and, and everything else in the world. But we do not have to engage with any of those things in such a way that we turn them into an idol. That we begin to listen to those first and most. And that's a choice. So, choose this day as the new year continues. Choose this day whom you will serve. And choose the Lord. And then keep choosing the Lord and, and keep choosing the Lord. That, that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's trying to invite his friends into a world where they're making good choices because they're doing higher choosing. They're not just choosing the way normal people would choose. They would choose in such a way that they're interpreting correctly. This is the message of God. And that's why he says to them, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then he says this, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless. Jesus is on some medical marijuana right now. He doesn't know what he's talking about. What, what in the world? Is, love your enemies? That, that's crazy, right? I mean, I mean, isn't that impossible? I mean, is, is that even possible to do? I had an enemy this week. It was my septic tank. Yeah, a little septic issue. You know, you find out a lot about yourself and your family when you can't use your toilets. I'm telling you, okay, quick, you find out a lot. I was real thankful. Uh, by God's grace, we had a couple of guys come out first thing the next morning, and they were fantastic, got everything up and going. And I'm fascinated with everything in the universe, especially fixing things. So I was right out there in the middle of all of it asking 100 questions. And they were very patient and gracious with me. I, I know so much about septic tanks and septic pumps right now, and I loved every minute of it. 
And at one point in the conversation, I stopped and I said, you know, you guys are heroes. You know that, right? And they chuckled. And I said, I ain't kidding. I said, do you realize that what you do every day, you change people's lives. And they do. It's a real thing. Now, let me just side note, just for a second. A few months ago, I was, I was reading a book, and in the book, there's a guy who asked his boss, hey, what was your first job? And she said, oh, it wasn't anything important. She said, I, I just, um, I cleaned dishes in the cafeteria at my college. And he said, not important. Are, are you kidding me? You were cleaning bacteria, et cetera, off of plates that were going to be used by people. You actually kept people from getting sick. And some of the people that you kept from being sick, well, they're leaders right now in the world and in our country and politics and medicine and science and law and so many other things. Your job, it, it mattered. Listen, in case no one's told you this in a while, what you do, it matters. No matter how old you are, no matter what family you come from, no matter where you grew up, no matter what you do for a living, no matter what you used to do for a living, what you do matters. You have value. And what you do in this world every day matters. Don't ever forget that. Because I'm telling you, those two guys in my backyard, they had value. You know why? Because they were dealing with my temporary enemy. My temporary enemy was that septic tank. And those guys, they were my neighbors. Even though I didn't know them, they were my neighbors. And from my perspective, they were loving their neighbor by digging that hole in my backyard. You see, the reality is, in a, in a very super strange way, that picture helps us understand why we should listen to Jesus, why we should love our enemies. How? Well, think of it this way. What if I had called the guys and they said, no, nah, we ain't coming to fix it. Just suffer, you miserable little jerk, you know? Well, if they didn't come fix it, you know what? There would have never been a moment for me to stand there and go, man, you guys, y'all are heroes. <laughs> that would have never happened because they wouldn't have come and, and helped my family and, and, and they wouldn't have helped that little old lady they helped right before they came to my house because that's what I said. I was like, man, y'all, y'all are helping. He chuckled. He goes, you know, to tell you the truth, he goes, that little old lady we just helped, man, she, she sure was thankful. I said, yeah, man. I said, you guys, you guys are changing people's lives. And, and then when they left me, they went to somebody else to help them with the exact same thing. And, and so this, this picture we have is that, that all of us, we, we look at loving our enemies and we go, mm, I can't do it. That's just too hard. You don't understand my enemies. You don't get it. You don't know how mean my spouse is. You don't know how, how abusive my parents are. You don't know this, this terrorism that I'm involved with. So there's no way I, I can love my enemies. Look, I'll be honest, it is hard. <laughs> even, even the thought of it is hard. And that's why we're going to unpack this a little more in next Sunday's message too. But, but just for this moment, let's just consider why we should love our enemies. 
Charles Spurgeon helps us a little bit. He says this, perhaps you say, I cannot love my neighbors because for all I do, they return in gratitude and contempt. Got that? You know, I try to love people. They're just a bunch of jerks back to me. They're not even appreciative. And this is what he said. So much the more room for the heroism of love. The more it is rejected, the more heroic it becomes. He goes on. He who dares the most shall win the most. And if rough be thy path of love, tread it boldly, still loving thy neighbors through thick and thin. And if they be hard to please, which they will be, seek not to please them, but to please thy Savior. And then he says this, love thy neighbor for in so doing thou art following the footsteps of Christ. How? How are we following the footsteps of Christ by loving our neighbors and maybe more specifically loving our enemies? I remember reading an article years ago. It really helped me with maybe the easiest and most motivating reason to love your enemies. And it goes kind of like this. Part of loving our enemies is hating the evil of our enemies because of what that evil is doing to them. And what is it doing to them? Well, they are blinded by the darkness of sin. They're blinded by the darkness of sin, meaning that they're on the, the wide path to the wide gate. And Jesus said the wide path and the wide gate leads to destruction. So we don't love our enemies for the evil that they're doing. We love them for what the evil is doing to them. We love them because they are on the path of destruction. And maybe to be more specific, one of the reasons that I should be compelled to love my enemies is I used to be an enemy. See, I, I used to be blinded by the darkness of my sin. I, I used to be on that wide path to that wide gate. And it wasn't an accident. I loved my sin, and I really didn't love God. And my sin proved it, and I knew it. But then one day, I heard the voice of Jesus. Not, not from long ago in history, like I was listening to a Christmas play or an Easter play. Now, I heard the voice of Jesus in my own heart and my own mind say, Father, forgive him. He knows not what he does. Father, forgive him because Dow's oblivious to what his sin is doing to his soul. Open his eyes and have mercy on him. And you know what? God heard that prayer from Jesus. And, and in an instant, I went from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. And to be a child of God means that we would chase after and pursue God himself. We'd want to be like the God saved us and God himself what does he do he has saved 
He is saving and he will keep saving his enemies. God's not saving his buddies and his pals and his friends. He's saving his enemies, the one that hate his ways, the, the ones that live in their pride with great joy. And so as a child of God, I'm called to do the hard work. I'm called to do the higher choosing of loving my neighbors and sometimes my neighbors are my enemies. So, what kind of person are you? That was the question from Jesus, right? Hey, who do I gotta love? Well, what kind of person are you? Maybe more specifically, are you a child of God? Because a child of God has been called to do the hard work. A child of God has been called to do the higher choosing. Are you truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? Listen, if sin's curse has lost its grip on you, then don't misinterpret the hard words of Jesus. If sin's curse has lost its grip on you, then strive to joyfully obey the hard words of Jesus. If sin's curse has lost its grip on you, then for the good of your family, for the good of this community, for the good of this church, for the good of the country, for the good of the world, for the good of your own soul and for the glory of God, love your neighbor. And sometimes your neighbor is gonna be your enemy. If sin's curse has lost its grip on you, then do the higher choosing and make room for the heroism love or simply put for the glory of God let's be heroes